Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola, and we have a very special episode for you today. It's one that we recorded a while back, and we've been sitting on it for a while because, frankly, it's building towards something kind of special for us here at the Italian American Podcast. And I just thought I'd hop on the mic for a second to introduce to you today's episode and kind of a new concept that we can use your help in. So for those of you that are longtime listeners, you're probably aware of the fact that we are building towards relocating our operations to a brand new studio in the heart of Little Italy in Lower Manhattan on Mulberry and Grand Street. It's going to be a beautiful new studio and retail space, all of it looking out onto that really important corner in the heart of Italian America. And we've been throwing around all kinds of ideas for ways to make the space really interactive and a central hub for Italian-Americans and Italians from all over the world looking for culture and cultural icons and touchstones and shopping experience, but also interactive experience. And one of the things that we've come up with is an oral history project, an oral history booth to be located in the studio space uh, in the retail store outside of our studio. And that was kind of spurred by a progression for our show. As those of you who listen faithfully will know, sometimes we have episodes where just the hosts on the mic talking about a topic. Sometimes we interview prominent Italian-Americans. Sometimes we have celebrity guests. But oftentimes we end up hearing about these very fascinating individual stories uh, of Italian-Americans that maybe wouldn't be recognized around the world, but who have really interesting stories worth telling and, in our opinion, worth preserving. And Pat's really passionate about these oral histories of individuals, the unique experiences that make up the Italian-American mosaic. And, you know, we always pride ourselves in, or at least hope we make an effort to recognize that the Italian-American experience is unique to each individual. It comes from different places in Italy, two different places in the United States, over the course of many, many, many different generations with different kinds of people who lead unique and individual lives. And and we want to be able to not only celebrate those with you, our audience, but also to preserve those stories for generations to come. So part of this oral history project is going to be episodes where we highlight what we call Italian-American stories, the paisani of interest. And Pat's been really spearheading this effort, uh, particularly around grandparents and and the older generations, but really also those Italian-Americans that have unique stories that might not otherwise be heard. And so we're going to sort of pilot that project with this week's episode. So hopefully you enjoy our interview with this wonderful Italian-American And if you've got anybody in your life who you think should tell their story and preserve it in our oral history project, either in person or with us on the air, send us a recommendation, make the subject line Italian American Stories, and send it to info at italianpower.com. That's I-N-F-O at italianpower.com. We would love to hear from you as we continue our mission to preserve the best of Italian America here on the Italian American Podcast. That you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola, spending the day with Ms. Rosella Rago and the notorious P.O.B. Patrick O'Boyle. We've got a very special guest for you today, somebody that Pat and I at least have come to know personally and uh, admire personally. So it's going to be a very uh, intimate conversation. Pat, you really helped set this up. And uh, you and I have worked with Warren over a few years now at the Italian Sons and Daughters of America, the ISDA. 
So why don't you jump in and take the introduction and uh, give us a little background for Warren and how he ended up here on the show today. All right. So John was asking me before, well, what, what's your vision for today? Right. And this is my vision for today. Rose book, Rose entire mission has been dedicated to Italian grandmothers. And I have found, and I've said this to a lot of people, if they asked me what separates the Italian American who's active in preserving a culture and a community, as opposed to those who are not, the one common denominator I find are those who are the most active or ones who grew up with a grandparent. And we have many um, listeners out there now that they're now Gen Z, right? People who were born after September 11th, people who were born in the early 2000s, and some of them have been blessed to have a grandparent, a time grandparent, and some have not. But I find that as we go on through the generations, right? So John and I and Ro, we are all the, the grandchildren of people who were uh, the greatest generation, the World War II generation. We were able to experience what they went through, right? The crucible that formed them to who they were. And I was really impressed with Warren when I sat with him at a few YSDA events to listen about his childhood in Pennsylvania in the late 1930s and the 1940s. And I was so blessed to hear that. And I really appreciated that. And I said to myself, there are so many of our listeners who have no, have no idea what was it like for a first-generation Italian-American kid growing up in America in the years before and during World War II. Um, you know, I met a kid one time, a Gen Z kid, and I, we were talking about, uh, I was talking about Italian-American discrimination. They had absolutely no idea. They thought I had like three heads. Hmm. The idea that Italians didn't get jobs or Italians couldn't buy houses or Italians couldn't go into certain neighborhoods or Italians were mocked on film. They just didn't get it, you know, and I wanted to let them know that it wasn't just the Italian immigrants, but it was also their children. And listening to Warren and his childhood, you know, the struggles, the good things, what it was like to have, like, you know, an Italian family around. I thought that it'd be great to have a grandparent series on the podcast to share with them what life was like for our current grandparent generation. That's a brilliant and beautiful idea. And I, I you know, it, like you said, stems out of Rose's incredible work with all these Italian grandmothers. And I, I think it's a great exercise because you learn so much. I mean, Pat, you and I were up with my grandparents for like five hours. We had lunch and we it's fantastic. them. And yeah, Absolutely we, I, fantastic. I learned and I ask questions all the time. So it, for those who, who don't ask questions or don't think to or haven't had the opportunity to, it's a great exercise because there's a collective wisdom and experience. And Warren Chabatoni, who we knew in his capacity as the former National Vice President of the Italian Sons and Daughters of America, has a very uh, unique and particular and uh, interesting story to tell. So, Warren, thanks for being here, and welcome to the Italian American Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you today. Warren, why don't you tell everybody what your real name is? <laughs> Boy, that's a long story. You better get yourself a drink. <laughs> All my life, I've been known as Warren J. Civitoni, okay? All my uh, legal papers were Warren Joseph Sibatoni. But uh, in 1960, I had a strong desire. I wanted to get involved in law enforcement. And when you get involved with the Pennsylvania State Police, there's a lengthy background investigation before you're even selected to go to the academy. So what happened was the investigator started the background and one day he came to my house and says, uh, what are you trying to prove here? Uh, uh, you, you have an, is your name an alias? Is Warren Civitoni? I says, no, why? He said to me, well, we picked up your birth certificate and on your birth certificate was Corino Chabaton. Wow. 
Porino. That is such a cute name. That's a beautiful name, I'll tell you. I love it. However, I had to go through a lot of uh, uh, roadblocks. I had to reapply for a birth certificate. So finally, after a lot of uh, interviews that they made, they determined that I had to go to court and uh, exemplify that I did not know that my name was Quirino at the time. And uh, I found out uh, not until after I was in the State Police Academy. So they made up new birth certificates and they approved my entrance to the State Police Academy. Now your mother was American born and your father was from Italy. My mother was American born, yes. My father was uh, born in Italy in the village of Arquata Pretera and uh, the uh, Ascola Pechen, I would say. That's probably the uh, overall county. And your mother was Italian-American, but born in the United States. She was Italian-American, yes. Where was your mother's family from? My mother's maiden name was Pinti, and she was born in, in the Reading area of Pennsylvania. However, her father was Brusseis, uh, and, and uh, he came from Italy. Uh, like I couldn't tell you at this time how old he was when he originally came from Italy. You know, I, the reason I love this story so much is the first client I had as an attorney told me a great story. He was born in 1916, uh, Mike D'Armando, and his father was from uh, Sant'Arsenio, in the Val di Diana, but his mother was a Italian American. She was born from by parents from Sala Consolina. So he's a little kid in Jersey City, born in 1916, and he was baptized Mariana. And his mother goes to register him for kindergarten, I guess first grade at that time, because they didn't really have kindergarten back then. And when she's walking him to school, she turns to him, she goes, I'm going to tell the teacher your name is Mike, because Mariano sounds too Italian. Wow. Just think of the messaging of that, right? Yes. And he went up to be Mike. He was Mike. He was Mike the rest of his life. He was Mike D'Armando. And I think that the idea that an Italian had to change their name to fit in, especially so a little kid doesn't get picked on in school. I think that's kind of really hard for the kids today to understand. Yeah, but my problem today is that people are all up in arms about naming their kids something Italian. They're like, oh, we exactly. can't Correct. we can't name our daughter Adolorata. Sorry, Dolores, you just popped into my head. You know, that's too Italian. You know, what do people think they're going to get made fun of? It's like they're going to school with Rainbow and River and Apple and Phoenix. And Brooklyn. <laughs> kids are naming their kids Brooklyn. Correct. Uh, yeah. Those those names are normal. We can't have ethnic names. I, I, I just don't understand it. I understand <laughs> in the 80s, you know, I, and I still can't believe that they let me be Rosella for as long as they did. And growing up, I did not like my name. I wanted to be Jennifer so bad. Jennifer Rago. Could you imagine that? I, I was ready. I <laughs> you that there were no keychains with my name on them at Disney World. Ah, and I was ready to be Jennifer Regina Rago. <laughs> so I'm going to start calling you Jennifer. Yeah. <laughs> on my birth certificate, my father was known as Henry Civitoni. I don't know where in the world they come up with Henry. But apparently when he came over from the old country and he had various jobs, uh, they gave him that name. And that's what was put on the birth, my birth certificate, Henry Sibitoni. But his real name was? Ronaldo. 
Wow, that's a stretch. You know, in, in my hometown, when, when people come across, uh, just like I had a, a real nice family that lived near me, his name was Fiorina. They changed their name and had him Joe Flowers, not Joe Fiorina. Wow. And it was like this with most of the Italian people. They didn't put the names down properly. That's how Al Smith, the famed politician and, and governor of New York and first ever Catholic presidential candidate, 1924, I think, uh, right? The, the father, I believe his father or even maybe his grandfather who came from Genoa changed the name from Ferraro to Smith. They just translated it. And that was I always found that very fascinating. That's a, you know, you see people who chop parts off and, you know, because uh, I think often we're under the, the pretense that they did it because it was easier. But was it done because it was easier or because they didn't want to they didn't want the negativity that came from being an Italian? Yeah. One of the things that we've uh, as a community sort of been a little bit easy on ourselves. Right. We, we've gone back and we've created what has really been proven by a lot of experts to be a myth that names were changed involuntarily at Ellis Island or wherever people immigrated into you know, a port facility or, or uh, immigration facility in the United States. I'm sure that did happen just through clerical error in certain cases. But the truth of the matter is a lot of time it was a decision made by these families or an individual in these families under, uh, you know, unfortunately difficult circumstances. But I've noticed a lot of people nowadays uh, actually go the other way and, and double down on names that really fit with the Italian last names. And I think that's really nice. I think it's uh, I think it's nice to see it's sort of a, a filling in of the circle, you know, coming together and uh Warren, you grew up in a place called Birdsboro, Pennsylvania, Berks County. That's correct. Can you kind of share with us where where that is and what that was like? Because, you know, there's so many different lifestyles in Pennsylvania. It was a small uh, Pennsylvania town about nine miles east of Reading, Pennsylvania. And in that community, when my father finally bought a home there, there were only five Italian families living in that area. Wow. And let me tell you this, it wasn't a pleasure to be with the neighbors until we proved ourselves. Uh, when we were just children, we would play, we'd be out of our block or two blocks away from our home. And these people would look at us and say, hey, little Dago, go back to your home area. Wow. And this used to hurt me so bad that I used to go home crying to my father. And my father would say, look, he said, don't you argue with them? He said, you're an, a, a United States citizen. He says, you are just as good as they are. Wow. And he would repeat that every day I, time I would go home crying. It, it wasn't a pleasure, believe me, to be uh, in that neighborhood at the time. But what I loved more in that community was when we had five families living there. On a Sunday afternoon, the women used to cook pasta and roast chicken. The men would play bocce. We, had, we didn't have uh, paved roads. And then we'd have a big dinner every Sunday. And the women would bring their food there in Soto La Gabana, underneath the the grape arbor at one of the homes. That's where we had our Sunday afternoon uh, dinners. All together. Right. All together. What a pleasure that was. And that really made me drive to why I wanted to really find the background of my family. 
that's pretty amazing. We think I we I noticed that when we were in Tonty Town, Arkansas, right, which was a town in the middle of I guess Northwest Arkansas, founded by all Italian families together, and the fact that they they did so much in community, right? They ate together. They it, you become like a a clan, you know, like an extended kinship group, and I I find um, there's some real relief in that that you can cling to each other even if you're only five families, you know. Oh, that was great. It shows you don't need a lot for an Italian community. Yeah, true. You were an Italian community, five families, but every Sunday afternoon you were an Italian community. Right. right. That's how Italians are. Like when we moved to New Jersey, like we were one of the only, I mean, there were a few people with, you know, vowels at the end of their name, but we're being first generation Italian American. We found like the one other family that was like us and we, you know, became family with them. You know, Ro, you and I share that in common, even later in life, as I'm really getting to know you, Pat, and then some of the, a lot of the people you introduced me to. I never in my wildest dreams, having left Brooklyn at five, never would imagine New Jersey was one of the most Italian states in the country. Because like you, Ro, we found like one, one of a dozen towns in the state that had no Italians and we felt completely alien. And uh, meanwhile, right around us was this bustling community of Italian people, but it was it was fundamental to who I was. I don't know if I would be here today if we had moved to a part of New Jersey where there was so many Italians, because I don't think I would. Yeah, no, I don't think I would have because I don't think it would. I would have, you know, like Warren said, it was it's hurtful. You know, it's hurtful to go to second grade and somebody say like, oh, you know, your dad's what does your dad do for a living? Is he in the mafia? And have to go home to your dad and ask him what the mafia is. I didn't even know what it was. You know, I totally so- had that experience, even in North Jersey, because most of the most of the people, if they were Italian, they were so far removed that they like had no connection to their Italian heritage. And then the Sopranos came out. Yeah. As soon as I was going to school, like what year did the Sopranos come out? Ninety eight. Ninety eight. Ninety eight. Ninety nine. I was 11 in 98. I had just entered middle school, which is, you know, the ninth ring of hell (laughs) uh, where everybody really doubles down on teasing you. And I got that all the time. My father's name was Vito. I didn't actually know what the hell he did for a living. He was in telecommunications, but I had no idea. And they would just ask me what my dad did. All of a sudden they were very interested in my family life. Because I was like the one Italian. Plus, I came from Brooklyn. People had asked me if like I'd ever been shot at. They had this like image of Brooklyn as being this very dangerous place. And then also I didn't look very Italian. So I got, you know, that I looked uh, Asian. So I got made fun of a lot for, you know, my cultural look, which is like, actually, I used to think I looked Asian. But now that I know, I really look pretty traditionally Pugliese. (laughs) It's interesting you say that, Ro, because the eruption of Sopranos and the consciousness around it was another big factor for me because again, I was like, this is nothing like my family. And then, you know, everybody who's not Italian was interested in it. And Warren, you served uh, in the U S armed forces in Korea. And then on coming home, eventually you made your way into the, um, the Pennsylvania state police Academy uh, to be a part of the state police force in Pennsylvania. And as I was reading your bio, I was thinking about something quite similar to this idea of the Sopranos, because you're talking about the 1960s, 1964, you, you got into the Academy. It's only about a decade after the Kefauver hearings really explode into the popular mythology of America, this idea of the mafia of organized crime and Italians and all of these things start. What was it like being a, a cadet at the state police academy, going into law enforcement at the 
earliest wave of this idea that Italians were tied to uh, organized criminality. Did you did you encounter that a lot? Yes, but uh, there were several times that I were involved in investigations on Italians on organized crime. You believe that? Yeah. I mean, what, what was that like being engaged in those kind of things? Well, sometimes it was really nerve wracking and, and I was really concerned about myself because I was afraid about exposing that I was working undercover on these situations. Oh, you were undercover? Yes. So tell us how, how, how do you go undercover to investigate organized crime? Is this like Donnie Brasco? What, what do you do? Well, you mean how I got on to that detail? No, like, what does it look like? What does an undercover investigation look like? You, you go up to these guys and say, like, hey, I'm Italian. You know, I, I want to hang out with you. How do you infiltrate? Well, I got into the, the places where they spent time, like in taverns. I got involved where there were uh, bar boot games. And I was there when they raided the bar boot games. And I was just a rookie at the time. They uh, pried open the uh, exhaust fan and threw me in the opening on the top of the bar boot table. And I was scared to death. <laughs> that is wild. Yeah, because uh, under that type of investigation, you would have to recover evidence, the money on the table, the cards, you know, and things of that nature. What was organized crime like in rural Pennsylvania in those years? Well, they were always controlled by an individual, like uh, controlling the numbers business, uh, they had their own areas and the people that booked numbers had to go do their service or pay their money to the bookies, um, bosses there. Yes, it was a small phase of it, but uh, it was still there when I uh, uh, was working undercover. And how long did you do that? Well, I've done it off and on for about a year and a half. I had a, a fictitious name. And I had all fictitious uh, cars with the fictitious license plates and things of that nature. But then I start getting deeper in one investigation and they were all Italians. They were not just uh, Greeks or other ones that were involved in this situation. And uh, I was op- wasn't even operating in, in my area, but I was operating in a city. and. I start seeing that there were some of our people that were involved within, and when I say our people, enforcement officers, and I was afraid I was going to be called a traitor. I called the commissioner of the state police and asked him to remove me from the, that uh, particular investigation. He uh, removed me, thank God. It, uh, it, uh, and then I had some pleasant times with the state police, very pleasant times. Uh, I was so excited when I was appointed to the academy and when we had graduation, I got up and had a short speech and I told them that I would make one promise while serving on the state police that I would at all times with the people I had contact within my duty to treat them the same way I would want my mother, father, sisters and brothers. And, you know, I spent 33 years on that position, and that's complete within the various departments of the state police. I can truthfully say 
that I've kept that promise that I had made 33 years ago. Yeah, you you certainly have. And being around you, you are a gentleman and a kind and thoughtful gentleman to everybody. I, I respect that greatly and did immediately upon meeting you. So I, I think that that speaks volumes about you, your family and, and your choice of career and, uh, you know, the, the commitment that you make going. Because I think nowadays, you know, TV and media, people think of the character of the cop. But in reality, it's a public service. It really is. And I think that gets lost a lot. What was it like? Let me ask you, Warren. What was it like being a little kid in the years before and during the war, being an Italian-American kid in Pennsylvania, in rural Pennsylvania? What was life like for you, your childhood? It just seems to me that we were treated like rejects. And if it wasn't for my father, particularly my father, who was born in Italy, would tell us, look, you are good people. We are good people. He says, uh, he, when, when he was released uh, from uh, service in, in, uh, for his discharge, the fact that he was a foreigner, they made him a citizen automatically of the United States. And this made my father just believe that the United States was the greatest country in the world. Did your father serve in the war? World War One. Yes. My father served in France in the First World War. For the American forces? For the United States. He enlisted. He was no longer two years in. The, he came over when he was 17 years old. He was no more than two years old. He enlisted into the military. And he was on a, a, a 59th Pioneer Infantry uh, Regiment out of Wilmington, Delaware. And they, when he left uh, Wilmington, he came back to Pennsylvania and they shipped him to France. Wow. And he was in France during World War, uh, World War I. That's amazing. I've always found it amazing to think of the people who immigrate here from any background. But obviously, I, I think about the Italian ones being new to this country and then making the conscious decision to go and fight for it. My wife, Nicole, her dad is the second youngest of 10 kids. Uh, So one of his older brothers got off the boat and uh, was drafted to go to Vietnam. And uh, it just amazes me to think what a head turning experience that has to be. You know, I mean, you, you served in Korea for what, two years. I did. Yes. And that was in, that was, in a peacekeeping role that was right after the korean war and the vietnam uh i was uh, was supposed to go to vietnam vietnam war had started but they were moving two divisions out of korea so uh, in doing boot camp uh, when we were released from boot camp they send our two divisions to replace the uh, soldiers that were in korea wow But John, you know what amazes me and what I wanted to bring to light in the podcast is Warren's father's in this country for two years, joins the American forces in World War One, an Italian kid who joins the American forces, comes out and not only is he a Dago, but so is his son. Yeah. His American born son from an American born Italian American mother and from an Italian father who had become a citizen after serving this country in World War One, they were still Dagos and thrown out of there. That, you know, uh, what, what are you doing here, kid? Go home. And that's why I want, so, especially our listeners, because I heard so much of this from my grandmother. It was so drilled into my head. You know, my grandmother would be 102 years old if she was alive today. And from my aunts who'd be pushing, you know, uh, 110 and, and up. 
And that's why I want the kids of today who didn't hear those stories to hear Warren's story and to understand besides the, the poverty, the depression, the turmoil of World War II, they also, American kids, were called Dagos because of who they were, where they had to change their names when they went to school. Yes. Why are Italian Americans so embarrassed of ethnic names? Not all of them, but some of them, when our own people had to suffer so much because of them. Yeah, I think you're right. Why, why are you embarrassed of a name like Luigi or Mario? Like someone said, why don't I wouldn't name my, they had a family name, it was either Luigi or Mario, I don't remember. Why don't I want my kid made fun of us in, in school? Who are the clowns to make fun of a kid for a name like that? Or the ignorant parents who raised those kids. You know, look at, look at, look at that. You know, we, we forget that there's a, and, and this is not to come out in, in an Italian American victimization, but we should understand that it's so much, it's easy to be Italian American today. Italy is sexy. It was not for Warren's generation. No, I mean, Warren, you grew up in the, you know, your, your earliest years in the, in the height of the Second World War. We're at war with fascist Italy. Was that something you were conscious of as a kid? No, not really. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because my grandmother said the same thing. My grandmother is your exact age. And I, we asked, Pat and I asked her not long ago while we were there. And she said, no, she really, it, the idea of being a combatant, of Italy being an enemy combatant was not something that they, I guess, as kids were uh, sort of focused on, which I found interesting, you know. And you, you served for two years in Korea. You came back. You went to the state police force. What got you active uh, with the Italian-American community? Obviously, we met with the Italian Sons and Daughters of America, who, by the way, are the co-creators and sponsors of our Greetings from Italian America series on YouTube. And it premieres always uh, concurrently on YouTube and on the ISDA Facebook page. And it was born out of their request to create more exciting and engaging content. So we're, we're all members and great devotees of the ISDA. How'd you get involved in that group? And uh, how did you end up as the national vice president? Yes, I had a friend that I'd met he was a member of the ISDA, and I, I was at his home for some reason. It, it was a uh, police service. And he says, how did you get involved in the state police? And why aren't you a member of the ISDA? And I says, well, I says, I wasn't really familiar with it. I says, but get me an application and I'll join. And I joined it, and I enjoyed it thoroughly because is particularly with my lodge and our area, we projected a lot of good things about we Italians. Uh, we had a scholarship, uh, at Dante Alighieri Lodge had a scholarship program. And on that application, we gave so many points for an Italian indiv individual's background. But however, we did go to every high school with the surrounding my area, which were seven high schools. And I dropped scholarship programs off to them and told them that they were also accepted within our scholarship program. And I think we opened up to the public that, hey, you know, those Italian people aren't too bad. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that uh, I have to continue with it. I enjoy that. Uh, organization very much you know think about it think about the response we have trying to make those people think we're not that bad mm. the same people who called us dago right yeah. so in the same community that called you hey dago kid go home as an adult you want to show them that you're not that bad and i think that's so much of what your generation went through 
I think it's even in even in something like giving a scholarship that comes out. Right. Constantly having to prove that, you know, we're we are acceptable to your community. Right. Now, I just wanted to add when I was going to high school, there were very few Italian named uh, people in the senior year with me. But we were never approached or given information about how we could get prepared to go to college or how we could get support, uh, financial support. We were never approached to that. And, you know, God bless it. I have three children and all three children are graduates of college today. And I feel that was quite an achievement for me. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think of my grandparents, you know, my my grandparents on my dad's side were same as Pat's grandmother. You know, my, my grandfather would also be 102. My grandmother would be 99 if they were alive. Uh, my grandmother was the youngest kid of 12. Her mother died when she was a young kid. She was the number one student in her eighth grade class in New York City Public School back in the day when there, that was like a factory, you hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids per class. And uh, nobody even mentioned to her like, hey, you should go to high school or you can go to high. It just it wasn't even a, a, a factor. And, and my dad and all of his uh, siblings, she single handedly with no resources, got them through college and graduate work. And um, it's a wonderful thing that we can be proud of as a people that progress, that progress. So, so frankly, so quickly, you know, to, to be aware of what certain generations didn't have access to and then to make it a priority to give it to the next generation. I really love that. Warren, did you feel discrimination in high school because you were one of the few Italian kids? Yes, I did feel that way because none of the guidance counselors or the uh, teachers would approach, approach me and asked if I was going to go to college. We were surnames or myself. We were never asked if we were interested in going to college. And that bothered me. And that's why when I was a member or joined the ISDA and I um, regulated uh, with the board that I would take college students regardless of their nationality. At that same high school uh, that we picked and we gave them uh, financial support uh, and, and I thought that was a great thing that we achieved. So in your in your old high school, you went back and created a scholarship program. Right. And since that time, the high school was merged with a couple of the couple of the schools together. But they were all within that area. That's wonderful. And there were scholarships that were open to everyone, irregardless of their nationality. That's correct. So Italians were paying for other kids to go to school. That's correct. That says a lot to who we are. I hope so. I hope it says a lot to the best of, of what we can be. Yeah, because, uh, you know, I find it interesting nowadays when I you know, look immigration is a complicated system and it's a complicated and often polarizing policy conversation. And I get that and I respect that. But I also think some part of you has to hear these kind of stories and search out what your ancestors went through or your grandparents or great-grandparents, because I, I think in all of these families that are coming here seeking a better life, progress, whatever it is, uh, I think most of us have something comparable in our own ancestry story. And I, and I think we forget that. I think it's, I think it's almost a, 
a weakness of the American system, frankly, that, that we're allowed to forget that. Uh, and, I, and I am impressed by the fact that you continue to this day, even at 85 years old, to commit to that. I know when we came on the mic, you were saying, uh, you know, you lose sleep at night over all the charity work that you do. It's, it's like a full-time job, right? Yep. Hey, now, John, I, I just want to relate one thing about my parents. You know, through all this turmoil against the Italians, my parents never dwelled on the bad. They always celebrated the good of what our families did. And one other thing I wanted, I wanted uh, something enjoyable. Uh, if you have time, I want to speak to you people about how I met my family in Italy. Yeah. When did you go back? Well, what, what, how this transpired, I had such a desire to find my family. And I'd get on the computer and I would uh, query the white pages of the name, Sibatoni name, you know, in Arquad or, or Oscar Lepichen. And I, if I got a phone number, I would call them and ask him, have you people were related to such and such a Sibitoni family or Ravita family? And I probably made hundreds of telephone calls. And for year after year, when I had time free, I, I would do this. And the funny thing about it, uh, I made a phone call to one of my cousins and his name was uh, Angelo Revito. And it was amazing. When I gave him the background of the, who I was, a half Italian and half an English to him, he said right away, he said, see, see, I knew, I knew those people. And here they were, my cousins. So I immediately got on the telephone and I called my son who was in Galarate on a program with the John Carroll University at the time. And uh, I called him and told him, here's a phone number of Angelo, call them and you, you speak good Italian, make arrangements with the family. And before my son got the uh, chance to call, they called him on the telephone. Wow. <laughs> and they made arrangements for him to go down to, uh, to Manziona, and meet the family. So my son went down a couple of days after that, and he was going down there every weekend and have Italian food, get back up to Milan or get off the train and go to, to Galarate. But we all got together. We made plans to go to Italy together. Wow. My daughter who was working, she just went for the weekend because she wanted to see how I would react when I met my family there. Wow. And it, it was just beautiful. We flew over there and we got there and it was just so exciting. You wouldn't believe. And to this day, I keep, we, we've been over since then now together six times to Italy. And that's the first place we go to, to Concetta, who she seems that she kept the family together over there. And we, that's where we got a lot of information. It was just so exciting. It's like putting a puzzle piece that you don't know is missing, right? It's like, it's like oh, your puzzle's almost done, and then you look at it, and you notice there's a piece missing in the image. And then when you find your ancestral town in Italy and you find your family, 
it just fills that piece in and it, it explains a lot. You learn things about yourself. You learn things about your history and it gives you a sense that something's been repaired, I think, you know. Okay. So, Warren, let me let me just clarify this. So you basically flip through Italian telephone books. That's correct. For the towns where your family came from, you kept flipping through telephone books. Right. And you're calling Italy back when calling Italy was very expensive. Yes. yes. And you're blowing all this money. Your wife probably wanted to kill you. <laughs> and you're calling up, getting one guy after another. No, 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 no. Until you got the guy who said yes. And now your family has been back to visit them six times. We're back again. You would have done this too, though. Sure. But my to me, it's just such a beautiful story. Yeah, it's just an absolute that's that kind of because if you take the the Italian drive of excellence, this is the this is what it is to make the best recipe row or to build the best cathedral or to paint the most beautiful painting or to write the most beautiful song to make the most beautiful movie. You know, uh, this is who this is who we are. And Warren stayed on that phone until I went through. Tons of a lot of phone bills and probably a lot of hangups, right? Probably hundreds of people hung up before he got the right one, possibly, or maybe 50, uh, 30. I don't even know, but I'm sure there was a lot of people who hung up and he just kept on calling. No, absolutely. I mean, it just shows we, we have this like craving to know who we are deep down. And it's like, there's always, when you're an immigrant, you know, you, you're born in America, even if you're born in America, there's always this sense of that you belong to somewhere else. Yes. And, you know, through all this uh, passion to learn that family and the work that I've done, I felt I've achieved something great. We're all united now and they treat me just like our family, just like we're gold when we get there. And, you know, they, they fed your kids. That's the most Italian thing. They found your son. They called him and told him to come over to eat. I mean, how, how much more of an Italian, yeah. you know, welcome could you get? That's love. That's our love language, right? Come and eat. Come to the table. Get together. Let me feed you. It's the ultimate opening up for who we are. I love that. I think that that's, uh, you know, we've talked about a lot of interesting and intimate subjects today, but I think none none more intimate than the idea of going back and doing the hard work. And that's the Italian uh, idea if there's a challenge ahead you get to gather the tools that you need and you put your head down and you work until you solve it and and warren however long it took you however many phone calls and uh rejections and hang-ups that you encountered you did it and, and look what you gave not just yourself and your wife but your kids but also future generations of the family because that knot has been retied and you know i, I think people forget that it's not just taking your kids but the, the next generations that continue to come they'll always have that. And that's, uh, that's an eternal gift. So you, you deserve uh, praise for, for doing that. Yes, and our children will continue with the, every generation over in Italy today. And, 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 and w- what's going to happen, they will keep together year after year. So the family tree, will, these people will be talking to each other continuously. I love that. I, that the concept of the family tree, it's almost like those you know those fancy garden trees you see where they braid them together? It's like you rebraided the branches of a family tree. That's really wonderful. Uh, that's a fantastic testament to you as a person, your hard work, your love, and your commitment to our community and culture. So that's that's why it's been so great to have you on here today. Uh, I just want to say I've always found uh, our brief interactions together in person 
could be really pleasant and heartwarming. And uh, I, I think our audience is going to see what a genuine and kind soul you are, uh, or hear what a genuine and kind soul you are through, uh, through this medium of the Italian American podcast. So thank you so much for coming on. You're a rock star, Warren. You're an absolute rock star. So great talking to you, Warren. Quarino. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you people. Uh, I could uh, talk about that family in Italy now every day with you people. It, it's, just, it's just such an achievement. I guess it was God's will. Amen to that. No better gift to receive uh, than uh, the gift of family. So thank you for being a part of uh, the ISDA family uh, and, and, and including us and in welcoming us into that family. And it's wonderful for us to have the opportunity to reciprocate and welcome you here into the Italian American podcast family and look forward to seeing you again in person at the next ISDA convention for sure. Certainly. I don't know where it is, but we'll be there uh, with bells on because we, we don't want to miss them. It's a great group. Anybody out there who hasn't uh, learned about the ISDA already, ISDA.org. It is a fantastic group and I, uh, just the nicest people. Hopefully everybody out there has enjoyed this wonderful conversation with the great Italian American and a great man. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. That you're born in Italian. If you want your life to be great, see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italiano.